about 18 years have passed from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 13. So the church has grown radically as we have seen. But again, the mission was to always go into all of the world to preach the gospel, to proclaim the gospel. And up until this point, it's really only stayed in the mainland area of Palestine and Syria. And it's really about to, to really venture out into Crete um, and, and, and Greece and other places around the world. And really exciting to see what is going to happen. So today what we're going to do is we're going to just look at three verses in Acts chapter 13. And really this is a continuation of a message a few weeks ago. Because we looked at the church at Antioch. And we, we talked about the church at Antioch and how they were an influencing church. How they influenced many others to do great things for God. And really, the church at Antioch was the, really the founding of a missions church. A church that really sent out individuals and missionaries to go around the world. Paul himself and Barnabas were sent out of this great church. So today is a continuation of the thought that we had a few weeks ago. And we looked at the influencing church. But today we're going to look at that impacting church. A church that is truly impacting the world. Because what we want at Eagle Drive is, is to really make an impact on our community. That's one thing that I desire of the utmost, to really impact uh, those that are around us. But not just those that are around us, but all of those that are around the world as well. Now before I really dig in a little bit deeper, let me go ahead and give uh, a couple of prayer requests this morning. Uh, pray for Brother Don Spain. He fell a couple days ago. Uh, he is pretty bruised up. I was there this morning visiting with him, Miss Dean. Uh, his hip is really, really bad. Uh, it looks like uh, the other guy got worse in the fight. I'm not really sure, but he is very, very bad. Face all bruised up. And then also pray for the Jacksons. Uh, they're doing okay. They're on vacation, but they got in a uh, collision on Friday, and it totaled their van. So a uh, great way to start vacation and their, and their road trip. So uh, we have many of our church family out of town on vacation this week, and I know throughout the summer... But let's go ahead and pray for those specifically, and then we'll pray for the service, and then we'll get into the message this morning. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for this day. And Lord, I pray that you would be with many of those in our church that are out of town, that are traveling, that are enjoying vacation, and I pray that you would help them to enjoy their time away uh, with their friends and with their family. We think of the Jacksons, and we're, Lord, we are very thankful that they were not uh, seriously injured. It could have been a very, very serious thing as that uh, truck uh, hit David's side and Tacey's side, and we're, we're thankful that they are okay, Lord. We're thankful for your protection. And Lord, we're thankful for uh, Brother Don and Ms. Dean and that he is doing okay, and I pray that you would just continue to be with him and encourage him and uh, to give him the strength that, that he needs to continue on. Lord, I know there's many other people in our church that are struggling with different ailments or injuries or uh, just whatever there is going on in their life right now, and I pray that you would just uh, be with them and put your hand of blessing upon them. Lord, we love you so much. Pray that you be with this message time this morning as we dig into your word. We love you in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 13. Let me read these first three verses. You can stay seated this morning. Now there was in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. So there is a diverse group of individuals, which we'll hit in just a minute, in verse number one. And that's one of the things that I love about this church at Antioch. They were a very diverse group, a very diverse church. You know, they, they reflected the culture around them. Verse number two, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. 
And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And one thing we're going to look at today is really, again, this church that is impacting the world and some very important principles and lessons that I believe we can learn at Eagle Drive and really any church in America or around the world today can learn from this amazing church of what happened in their life. Antioch really, it gives us the model of a church that influenced and impacted their community and their influence hinged on their urgency to fulfill their commission. Remember, our commission is to go and spread the gospel, to live the gospel, to influence others with the gospel, to impact others with the gospel. In Antioch, again, it's one of my favorite churches in the New Testament because they're a church that's shaped by, molded by, and fueled by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, our theme for our church, our vision statement, is that we exist to reach people with the radical power of the gospel, and that's what I see in Antioch. You know, three aspects that we saw last time that made them such a great influencing church was because, I don't know if I have this in your notes or not, but they had effective evangelism, which means they went out, oh, that we do, thank you. They went out and they did what they were called to do. They had effective evangelism, which anyone that they met, they shared the gospel with. Now, there's a lot of times in individuals in my life that I come across, and I'm sure you as well, that you know you should share the gospel with. You know you should at least invite them to church, and yet we fail to do that. We've all done that. But one thing I see with Antioch is that they went out and they did what they could. And that's what God asked of us. He asked us to do what we can for him. So they had an effective evangelism. They were reaching out to not just people that were like them, but to all groups of people. Because they knew that the gospel wasn't just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, for the whole world. They had a dynamic discipleship. Meaning that once people got saved, there needed to be a next step, right? As soon as they got saved, you can't just turn them over to, all right, good luck, grow on your own. That happens a lot of times in churches. We get people saved, you know, and and baptized, and all right, good luck, you know, try to learn the Christian life on your own. That's not biblical. Even see with Jesus, how he spent several years with a group of individuals, how he poured into them. Look, discipleship is relational. We need to uh, invest in other people and spend time with them. And we saw that with, with Saul and Barnabas, that they spent several years there early on in the church at Antioch to really pour into these individuals, to teach them, to train them. And then another great aspect of this church, we saw that they had a great mercy ministry. They had a love for others. They saw that others were hurting in Jerusalem with the drought and the famine that was going on there. And they, they took of their own Basically, what they had, what God had given them, they took it, basically an offering, so to speak, and then they sent it with Saul and Barnabas to go to Jerusalem to give to them. It's very important that we give to others what God has given to us. I'm not saying we have to give more, and I I alluded to that a couple weeks ago. You know, many times people are like, well, I wish I could do more. Well, that's great, but do what you can do. Do what God has called you to do. And if more people in churches would just do what God has called you to do, then the church would be taken care of. Missions would be taken care of, honestly. Now, I don't know the statistics in our church per se, but, you know, I, and I've read it, and I know a statistic is just that. It's a statistic. But I've talked to many other pastors and ministry leaders, and it's, it's fairly true that most of the time, it's well, well, well under 50% of the people that are doing most of the work, that are giving to the work. Because what happens a lot of times with this, people are like, especially with money, it's my money. I'm not giving up my money. Church has enough. They don't need any more. 
Well, it's not about the church and building more buildings. It's so the gospel can go forward, so that the gospel can advance, so that we can send out more missionaries, so we can send out more church planners. But a lot of times people are so greedy, especially in America, and we want to hold on to what God has given us when God only gave it to us to be a steward to then invest into the lives of others. So it's very important that as a church, we too develop a mercy ministry, develop a ministry that we are serving other people and trying to share what God has given us to others around us. But there's two more ingredients to a church that is really an influencing church and an impacting church. And what we see in verse number one is this. They were an inclusive church. They were an inclusive church. You know, we looked at the names there in verse number one. Let me read it again, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive into this here in just a second. Now, now, there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. So upon first glance and first read, you think, okay, there's four or five individuals there. Yeah, whatever. Now, when you study them further, you see that this was a very, very broad, very diverse group of people. They all didn't look the same, and that's okay. The thing I love about Antioch is this. They had a multicultural leadership and multicultural membership. Now, I believe that's a biblical model. I understand there are certain areas and certain communities around the world, or you know, even in America, let's, let's point right there where the culture of that community is predominantly one or two culture groups. Understand? But if, if an area is very diverse, you think of obviously the Metroplex, it's more diverse than, than Decatur. The, an area like the Metroplex that is very diverse, shouldn't a church reflect the culture around them? It should, right? But a lot of times, do we see that? No. We see a one-culture type of church. So we, what we're doing in our churches, we talked a lot about racism here and different things like that here recently, but the church is no better than the community. It's no better than the world. We are segregating people. Well, we have this type of church and this type of church and this type of church and this type of church. You go to your church. But again, when we get to heaven, every ethne, every language, every tongue, every people group will be all gathered where? Around the throne. And really what we're supposed to be doing on earth is really in replication of what's going to happen in heaven. And the point I'm trying to make and the point that we need to understand here is that, again, I, I know Decatur and Wise County, it's, it's not as ethnically diverse, so to speak, as the Metroplex would be. But still, if there are other diversities within our culture that are in our community, Shouldn't we do our best to reach them, to bring them in? Yes, we should. And that's what I see in Antioch, that they could have easily been, you know what, we got a bunch of Gentiles, so let's focus on the Gentiles. They didn't do that. They focused on anyone and everyone. And really, the question I have for myself and really for us in my notes is, you know, what type of church is going to have a greater impact? Think about this. I don't want you to necessarily answer it, but I think the answer is obvious for us. What type of church is going to have a greater impact? a multicultural, multi-generational church or a one-culture, one-generation church? Multicultural, of course. But again, we've all experienced or seen churches that are maybe one-culture, one-generation type where predominantly, again, and I've seen this growing up in ministry, I've seen this even in our church, where 
you know, there, there's predominantly older people, <laughs> or there's predominantly younger people, or there's middle-aged people, or, you know, whatever. A church should have every generation, right? Young, middle-aged, and old. Shouldn't just be one of each. And, and that's been part of the problem, not just been here, being here, but I think sometimes uh, as a pastor, I know talking with my, with my father, with my father-in-law, and so many other friends in the ministry, sometimes people are like, you know what, there's just not a lot for me at that church, so I'm going to go somewhere else to be with my friends. Well, you can be with your friends anytime, but if, if the church is helping you grow spiritually, that's where you should be. And, and one thing, and, and this isn't to try to just, you know, stomp on people today, but the, the thing that, that frustrates me sometimes as, as, a, as a spiritual leader of the church is the fact that when some of our older people have left, they say, well, there's nothing for us here. And I understand that some of the ministries that we have aren't anymore. But biblically speaking, the older generation, it's your job to what? Teach the younger. How are they going to learn? Unless you teach them. Unless you instill your knowledge into them. You can't expect, Nate just had a birthday yesterday, he turned seven. I can't expect Nate, now that he's seven, okay, you're a man, all right, figure it out on your own. I have to continue to teach him, right? He's my child. To continue to train him, to continue to pour into him. Because God has given to me and to my wife and to others around us to pour into Nate, to pour into Noah. Same is true with us as we grow up in, uh, in not, not even just in ministry, but as we grow in the Christian life. As we grow, as we mature, it's our job to effectively then help other people, to teach others also, right? That is the correct model. And that's what we are seeing in Antioch, and that's what we see in churches that are thriving. But churches that are on decline, you don't see that. You don't see multi-generational churches. You see one predominant generation. You don't see multicultural churches. You see one or two predominant cultures when the church is supposed to be very diverse. Syrian Antioch featured a multi-ethnic population. It was one of the largest cities of the Roman Empire. And as the gospel spread to the city, both Jews and Gentiles became believers. This multicultural group found itself living in fellowship. Now, listen to this. There's an importance in a church understanding their identity because they had an identity that was fastened in the gospel. But listen, in order to have a true gospel identity... We have to be unified in the gospel. You see, the gospel unifies us. It unifies all cultures, all generations. And if you don't believe that, then you need to study your Bible. Because the Bible strongly teaches that the gospel brings people together. It unifies those that, again, I have countless individuals in my life that I've come across. And really, there was nothing that we had in common until they got saved, and then all of a sudden we had commonality. We had Christ. And even going around the world, as I've mentioned before, whether it be a mission trip in Mexico or Costa Rica or Africa, the thing that I've seen, people looking different, that we have a commonality. And the commonality is Christ. Because Christ is what brings us together. And this church here in Antioch was truly unified. Now, I, I want to I reference these men, these individuals, to help us understand a little bit more. But we saw the group of men that was established here in verse number 1. You know, we've heard of Barnabas back in Acts chapter 4. You know, Barnabas was very much of an encourager. 
You know, Barnabas was an individual that was all in. He was sold out to God. He was one of the early disciples of, of Jesus in the church and really just trying to help promote the gospel and share the gospel. Now, quickly, you have Saul. Now, this is before he got saved. So you had Barnabas that was there trying to help build up the church. And you had Saul before his conversion there on the road to, to Damascus who was trying to destroy the church. So Barnabas building up the church, Saul destroying the church. But now that Saul got saved, he found Jesus. What has happened? They're together. One that was tearing things down, one that was building up, have now come together. Now, I'd imagine, I know just reading different history books, this is true, but I'd imagine that there were probably some that Barnabas knew personally that were affected by Saul the terrorist. So think about that. Think about if you knew someone in this community that was just a horrible individual. Anybody got a face right now? I don't want to know. But you think of someone that's just a horrible individual. Obviously, they need Jesus. They need to be saved. And maybe some wicked things they've done to individuals or, or to you, and you've been affected by those types of people. But then something happens, they get saved. And the amazing thing, if someone gets saved and they start growing in their Christian identity and they start growing in who, who they are in Christ, they realize that that former life is not their life anymore, right? They've been changed. They're a new creature. Old things are passed away. And it would be like someone like that, that has gotten saved, that is in the church, and that is helping build the church and grow the church. And I'm sure Barnabas, he probably maybe had his, had his uh, you know, antenna up, so to speak, early on, like, okay, you know, this was a bad guy. This is a bad individual. He's affected people that I know and I love dearly. But you know what? He said, this guy got saved, and I'm going to trust that Jesus saved him. I'm going to trust that Jesus did a work in his life. And you know what? The things that happened in the past are in the past. But what do we like to do? We like to hold on to things, right? We like to hold on to grudges. I don't know if they're really saved or not. Well, you can see evidence of it, but still, you don't know how they used to be. Well, of course, but that's how they used to be. They're not that person anymore. Do I need to go back to Ephesians? Hopefully not. (laughs) Understanding who we are in Christ is important. The old things are passed away. So again, I'm setting the stage here. We have Barnabas, a builder of the church, Saul, a destroyer of the church, and now they're working together. Why? Because the gospel. The gospel has grown them together. You know, Saul had that amazing transformation on the road to Damascus. So now think of the relationship between Barnabas and Saul. And now they're working together to build the church, to share the gospel, because the gospel reconciles people. Here are two people that are truly unified in the gospel. Now let me take this a step further just to understand these other men. Barnabas, he grew up in Cyprus, not in this area. Simeon, he is an Aramaic, it's an Aramaic name. He is called Niger. It's a Latin word meaning black. Lucius, or as I call Luscious Lou, whatever you want to call him, is a Greek name. He is said to come from Cyrene, which is a region in northern Africa, west of Egypt, approximately where Libya is today. So there's a very good chance that a couple of the early leaders in this church in Antioch were black men. Now, some today would be like, whoa, I don't know about that. Study it out, and you'll see. You go on. 
Then there's Menaean, as I call Handy Manny. <laughs> Sorry, too much Disney Channel. Uh, <laughs> Menaean or Manny was a friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, this is important. Now, we've talked about the Herod family before, and we talked about them just a couple weeks ago as well. Here's what we know about Herod the Tetrarch and his family. We know the Herods are not great people. If you're of the Herodian camp and you're on Ancestry.com, you're not going to be there very long before you find out that there's not a lot of good news for you. Herod the Great, if you remember in the Christmas story, was the one who, after the wise men came to him, he said, I want all of the babies, all of the baby boys under two years old, killed. Why? Because he was afraid and nervous about losing his throne. On top of that, this same Herod, Herod the Great, had a brother-in-law and mother-in-law executed. Then, as if that wasn't enough, he also had his second wife executed. Talk about a dysfunctional family, right? I mean, but that's the type of individuals that were in the Herodian family. And Menaean was a friend of that. He was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, a clear enemy of Christianity, right? A clear enemy of the church. And yet, Menaean, handy manny, whatever you want to call him, he got saved. The gospel changed him. Now he's in this church. Again, forget about the past. Forget about past associations. I know we, we can't get over that sometimes. You know, Saul himself, he grew up in Tarsus and he helped in prison and kill countless Christians. But this leadership, it reflected the membership of their church. Diversity within the church <laughs> is an attractional dimension. You know, what I love about this church the most, again, it's, it's more than just these couple verses if you really studied out in church history. What I love about this church is that they weren't just known for a certain type of people. They were known for all types of people. Understand where I'm coming from here? Again, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to be mean today, but there are churches that are known for certain types of people. We attract this type of people. Honestly, it drives me crazy. But this church here, it wasn't just one type. It was all types. That this church was open for any, for all. Those that had it together and those that didn't have it together, and yet they unified themselves because of the gospel. And this really goes back to what we saw in Acts chapter 11. They had this cultural engagement mentality. Look, prejudice is everywhere. We all have prejudice. But one that has truly allowed the gospel to transform them has allowed cultural prejudice to be stripped away. You know, I'm sure that you think about this. These leaders, these members, they grow up from different regions, different cultures. They're not going to all see things eye to eye, right? I mean, just think about in a marriage relationship. Do you ever see eye to eye all the time with your husband or wife? No. If you do, come talk to me and tell me the secret. <laughs> but we all don't see things eye to eye. We see things differently. So imagine, especially when you're with a bunch of other people that are different, completely different than you, grew up in a different culture. Okay, let's, let's simplify it. And just even in America, in the American culture, again, growing up in the Midwest, growing up in Indiana, Michael growing up in Michigan, it's different down here in Texas, isn't it? That's okay. 
What'd you say? It's worse. It's, <laughs> well, <laughs> anyway, we'll edit that part out if it was bad. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I need to stop. All right. Uh, anyway, uh, you have different cultures, different regions. People do things differently. It's clear, obviously. We've joked around about it before, but it's clear. People do things differently than they do in Texas. That's not a bad thing. Northeast's completely different, right? Completely different. Uh, Southwest and, and West Coast, completely different. But again, what you see is if the gospel has truly transformed you, it can unify you. And you're not always going to see eye to eye because, again, I have family in the Northeast. I have family on the West Coast. I have family on the, in the Southeast, all over in the Midwest. And the thing is, we don't always see eye to eye. Right, Amanda? Right. With all the family, we don't always see eye to eye. I'm not, it's not the message. You're getting me off track. But, but the thing is, we can, you know, forget about our differences and come together with a commonality and a common goal and understand that we all have the same mission. We all have the same purpose on this earth if we are saved, if we are children of God. And again, I'm sure these leaders saw things differently at times. But their diversity likely enabled them to be more creative and be more effective in reaching their city. Look, it's easier to impact the world through the church when the church is just as, as diverse as the world around you. But it's hard for the, war, or the church to impact their community when their church is not as diverse as the community around them. This church had diversity. They were inclusive in the sense that, you know, um, anyone could come in. Not so exclusive as some have made themselves to be. They had different customs and cultures and thought structures, but they were all brought together by the power of the gospel because the gospel has the power to overcome our prejudices and our past and cultural differences. The second thing we see here that kind of wraps it all up today with this church at Antioch being this influencing and impacting church, they were spirit-directed and gospel-driven. They were spirit-directed and gospel-driven. Bless you. Verse number two, as they minister to the Lord, as they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, they're fasting, they're praying to the Holy Spirit, and they said, the Holy Spirit is speaking to them, separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and they sent them away. Antioch gives us a model of a church that was on mission. This church at Antioch was truly a gospel-centered church. They had an impact on their community and the world around them. As, as case in point, they're about to send out their own to be missionaries. This is really the start of Paul's missionary journeys. How did the Spirit speak to him? Now, we don't know exactly how he spoke. We don't know if it was an audible voice. It could have been. It could have been just through some of the leaders that the Spirit spoke to those leaders, and the leaders were receptive of the Spirit's leading, the Spirit's speaking, and they brought it to the church, and the church was receptive of that, and the church prayed. They fasted. They got together on this. You know, regardless of how the Spirit spoke, what we do know for sure is that they spent time together praying. They spent time together fasting because they sensed the need for God's direction. Again, by the time we come to Acts chapter 13, 18 years have passed 
since Jesus commissioned his church. The gospel has been reaching out, but, the still, but still, the world needed to be evangelized, and the church knew this. And I'm sure that, they, they, uh, that, that, uh, that heavy weight was upon them, understanding that, okay, God commissioned us. He told us to go into all the world, but the whole world hasn't been reached yet. So what are we going to do? How are we going to reach this world? And the church knew this, and that's what Luke is telling us about how missions began. But what, what happened and what we see, and, and don't miss this church, they got involved in fasting and prayer for the work of the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit wanted them to do. Now, there are three transferable lessons that emerge from this passage, and I want you to write this down if you're taking notes today. First thing is this. Worship and expectant prayer fueled their mission. Worship and expectant prayer fueled their mission. You know, based on my own study and many, many hours of just reading up on different things, I dare say that this was not just a one-time special prayer meeting. I believe this was common. I believe this was routine in their church. You know, and look, don't, don't take me wrong here. There's nothing wrong when you have these special times of prayer, right? Something happens to an individual, to a family. Let's really pray over them. Let's pray over this individual. Let's pray over this family. Nothing wrong with that. But it shouldn't be out of place when the church meets together to pray. When the people within the church are gathered together to pray. But a lot of times that doesn't happen. And I don't want you to answer this verbally or audibly, but why don't we meet together more to pray? That's a very key element of a thriving church. A church living on mission, individuals living on mission. You know, we come together and we worship the Lord with our singing, with prayer, with the teaching of God's word. But it's more than just one time a week. It's more than just, oh, we have a Wednesday night prayer service and we, we pray for a few minutes and take a couple of requests and all right, we're all prayed up. Well, I pray together on my own. I, I pray throughout the day. You know, the Bible tells me to, you know, to, to, to uh, what's, the, what's the verse? Um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> I couldn't think of it. I was about to say, cease not praying. I was totally off. Yoda or something. Um, to pray without ceasing, to pray without stopping. And really, really what we saw also, was it back in Acts chapter 12, where, remember when Peter was in jail? What was the church doing? They were praying. But again, I, I don't think this was just a one-time thing. I think this was probably a routine for them because there was a lot of opposition. And there's still a lot of opposition today, isn't there? In your own lives. There's a lot of conflict in your lives. And we have the church, we have the local church to be a community. And community needs one another. We thrive off one another. And, and what I desire and what I want, and I, I don't want to manufacture it, but what I want, what I desire so desperately is that we are worshiping with an ex expectancy. And we're praying together with one another. And really, this is what fueled their mission. Look, no doubt that they were burdened, that the thought that they had never, that there were many people that had never heard about Jesus Christ. Are we that burdened about our world that have never heard about Jesus Christ that we are willing to pray with other people on a regular basis? so that the gospel would go forward to them? 
Again, we'll, we'll pray when, when someone's in the hospital, when someone is dying, but are we praying with expectancy for people to get saved? You know, think about the men that I just mentioned. These men were more concerned with the advancement of the gospel than they were about each other's past. And some of us can't get over people's pasts, right? Can't get over what someone used to be. Look, true spiritual leaders, it's not about running with their own agenda. They are seeking God in dependent prayer. And here's a very powerful truth. Churches that impact the world exalt Jesus passionately and seek him in prayer dependently and expectantly. And if we want to be a church, and I hope it's not just me that wants this, but if we want to be a church that truly impacts our community and our world, then we have to exalt Jesus passionately and seek him in prayer dependently and expectantly, depending on him to do what he can do and expecting him to do what he can do. We move on. The second thing we see is this. The Spirit and the congregation together affirm this mission. The Spirit directing the leaders within the church. They brought it to the church's attention. The church together affirmed the mission that God had given them. And there's so much we could say about this, but we can't for sake of time. But this wasn't about individualism or institutionalism. You know, we don't know how, but we do know the Spirit spoke to them with a directive, and the church affirmed it. The church then sent out their own. Now, we have to understand quickly that it's not boards that send missionaries. Churches are supposed to send missionaries. Paul never operated apart from the community of the local church. So the Spirit and the congregation together affirmed what the directive was, affirmed the mission for the church. But then we see, finally, and really we'll make an application to this, and this is important, the church sent their best on mission. Verse number three, it says, and when they had fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them, they prayed over them, they sent them away, that phrase there, they sent them away. Yeah, I love this part. They gave their best leaders. Who were their best leaders? Barnabas and Saul. They were totally committed to the gospel calling, even over their own comfort. And this church at Antioch is stepping out in an act of faith and making a sacrifice. They were willing to give away key leaders in obedience to God. And for the good of others, and Jesus loves this. See, these two high-capacity leaders are set aside for the work of God. They set them apart. As the Holy Spirit said, separate me, Barnabas and Saul. Hey, I have chosen them. I want these individuals. And there might be individuals within churches that God wants as well, but the church isn't willing to separate them. The church isn't willing to send them out. The church isn't willing to, to allow them to go, or they are not allowing the Holy Spirit to lead them in going. You know, what if, I don't want you to answer this, but think about this. What if the Holy Spirit were to send some of our best leaders out? You know, it's not easy if that happens. 
But staying in a fruitful and productive ministry where people are thriving, it's not easy to send people out like that. You know what's difficult? Leaving and starting something new. But we weren't called to this earth to just be comfortable. To grow complacent. In the picture of God's direction given in Acts 13, we're going to look more about it in the next couple weeks as we continue this passage and look at so many other places that uh, Saul and Barnabas visited. But the picture of God's direction given to us in this chapter is that God wants someone to do something. When he wants someone to do something, he informs the individual, and he informs also that church. The church in Antioch started to get involved in missions because they, they were in proper fellowship with God. It's characterized by their worship, by, by their prayer, by their fasting. Now listen to me. Missions is an important part of the church, and I have a heart for missions. I really do. But more importantly, I, I do desire that we radically reach people with the power of the gospel. The gospel grows an individual. The gospel engages individuals in missions. You know, I want a church that is so, so much growing in the gospel, has their identity staked in the gospel, that they'd be willing to leave behind everything so that the gospel could advance. And that's a scary thought, and I've said it before. Write this down. This is kind of what it, the culmination of this message is this morning. A church that is on mission for God is a church that is both unified and multiplying the gospel. A church that is truly on mission for God is a church that is unified together. Same goal. Again, you talk about sports. Leave it up for just a minute, Michael. You talk about sports, though. The teams that do the best and usually win in the end, not that they don't have problems, but they've come together. They have accepted their roles on that team. Knowing that not everyone is the greatest and the best, they all have different talents and abilities, but they are the best usually at working together collectively, right? They have unified themselves. And a church that truly wants to make an impact is a church that is going to unify themselves with the gospel and a church that is multiplying the gospel. I've said it before. Today, we are so focused on church additions when the early church was more focused on church multiplication. What's the difference? There's a, a great amount of difference there, isn't there, between addition and multiplication. And it's not about just adding a few people to the church, it's about multiplying the church. As people are added and brought in, they should be discipled, they should be grown, and then they should be going and getting other people to be brought in, to be brought in, to be brought in. And then through that, there's probably going to be people that are going to be sent out to go to other places. You know, the mark of a healthy, a thriving, a flourishing church goes far deeper than just seeing people saved and baptized. It's more than just seeing people discipled. The mark of a healthy church is about multiplying the gospel. You know, a few years ago in our missions month, you know, I told us, I told our church how I, I desire that Eagle Drive be a training center and at the time, I didn't necessarily envision a Christian school. It was really back, 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 back of my mind. Had other things in mind for that. I desired that we be a training center, that we are training up a generation of leaders to send them out to advance the gospel. 
And, and one of the things that I said is that, you know, I want this to be a place where people come in and are sent out. And, and I jokingly said, you know, I, I don't want this to be a place where y'all stay. I want y'all to leave. Now, obviously, many have misunderstood me in the past five and a half years, and they've left to go to other churches in town. That's not what I was saying. I wasn't saying, I want you to leave to go to another church two minutes down the road. No, I want you to leave the community to share the gospel, to spread the gospel. Once God has gifted you, once God has given you what you need, don't just take it, take it and use it to help other people. Wouldn't it be great if we had missionaries and church planners coming out of our church in the future? Some parents are like, oh, I hope that didn't happen, so I'm not sending my kid to that Christian school. But I would love that. I don't know what God has in store for my kids. Most importantly, I just hope that they serve God. I hope they follow his leading, whatever that might be. Whatever ministry that might be, whether it's full-time capacity within a church leadership like a pastor or evangelist or missionary or something like that, or if it's just in the secular field and they're just serving in a church. That's my desire, but I, I do. I, I desire that we are training people to send them out. Look, I want individuals who are willing to do whatever God wants them to do, wherever God wants them to be, whenever that might be. And Acts teaches us that we must be in action, right? In our past several series, our last series was about being activated. Like that match, that match is useless unless it's been activated, unless it's been struck, unless it's been lit. And as a church, we are called to be an active church. A thriving church is an active church. It's a church that is unified in the gospel and multiplying the gospel. And here's the key truth of this message today. And again, there's so much more that we'll look at in the weeks to come. But a thriving, flourishing, gospel-centric church is a church that is sending and not just keeping. There's nothing wrong with individuals staying in a church to train other people. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But I dare say, and I know this with surety because I've seen it in my life in different ministries that I've served in, that there are people that I, knew, I know for sure God called them because they said that. God called me to go out to do something and then something happened. They got a great job or a great promotion. They just got comfortable where they were. And it's not necessarily that they had to be a pastor or something like that. Maybe God was wanting them to go somewhere else to invest in other people. But many of us aren't willing to honestly fully obey the commands of God. Because, look, nobody wants to uproot themselves or their family, right? Nobody wants to do that. But what if God was asking you, calling you, pleading with you to do that? Well, I'll pray for someone else then. That's typically the response. Pastor, it's, it's, I hope maybe it's you. Sometimes I hope it's me too, but... Uh, <laughs> Regardless, are we praying for others or are we praying, God, whatever you want me to do, I'm willing to do? You know, th this series sent, it's really, it's, it's not about all of us just being sent out. Really, we, we are. We're sent out every day. Because every time I stand up here to preach and teach God's word, I'm giving you the tools that you need to go out into your homes, into your community, and to share the gospel. But are we doing that? Are we effectively teaching others what has been already implied or implemented in our lives? You know, we have church service. We have EQ, which stands for equipped. 
It's a, it's a time to equip further in the message, but are we taking those tools that have been given and then equipping others? Or are we just taking them and, man, that was a great service. All right, I'm going to go home and just go busy about, of my life even more and do nothing with the message because, sadly, that's what happens. So, again, and I'm not trying to be mean, but why do we even come? Why do we even come if we're not willing to do what God wants us to do? I want to be a church on the move. I, I want us to reach Decatur and Wise County and, and Texas and the world for Christ, but we have to get a hold of this. Antioch got a hold of this principle, this model. Amazing things happen with them. And what we've seen in those five aspects in the past several weeks is that they had effective evangelism. They were out there in the community trying to reach people with the gospel. And once people got saved, that dynamic discipleship, they spent time with them, investing in them. This mercy ministry of, of helping others that were in need. They were an inclusive church. They, it wasn't just excluding certain types. It was including all types because the gospel is for all and the gospel is what changes. And then they were spirit-directed and gospel-driven. This is what I desire, Eagle Drive. I desire that we are spirit-directed and gospel-driven in all that we do and all that we say. But we have to ask the question, are we allowing the spirit to influence us to impact others?